The scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Romans, chapter 10, verses 9 to 15, and you will find this reading on page 1121 in your pew Bibles. It's Romans 10, 9 to 15. Listen for the word of God. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are delighted to welcome Dr. Nabil Qureshi to Knox. Nabil is a speaker with Rabbi Zacharias Ministries International, and he is living in England at the current time, which is why he's going to take off immediately after the service so that he can get to his six-week-old daughter in England uh, very soon. He has written a book, his testimony, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, and it is going to be available immediately after the services. And it, um, the Crux Books from the University of Toronto is selling it um, at a great deal, $15. So do take opportunity to, uh, to uh, pick that book up. Maniva, why don't you come forward and let's pray for Nabil, shall we? Welcome. Gracious God, we thank you for you, your presence, your life that you give to us. Thank you for Nabil's life and how you have journeyed in his life and drawn him to Jesus Christ. And as he preaches now, we pray for an anointing of your Holy Spirit to speak with clarity and truthfulness so that we might come to know Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Am I on? Now I'm on. Can you hear me? You do realize I'm not on a TV screen, right? I can see you. Good morning. There we go. Let's get people involved in this. Um, goodness, I'm so honored to be here in this very auspicious building on this auspicious occasion. Um, I've been coming to Toronto for a very, very long time, actually, about once a year since 1990. Um, I've been coming up to this city. Uh, my aunt, uh, I have an aunt who lives in Cambridge, not far from here. Um, so we used to visit her every year, and then I had another aunt who moved from Pakistan into Toronto in the mid-90s. I think she's the only person ever to move from Pakistan to Toronto. <laughs> Checking to see if you're awake this morning. Um, how many of you were at my talk last night? You, thanks. You, great. Good, that means I can recycle all my jokes, so it's perfect. Um, 
I want to turn to the Lord. Uh, I'm, I'm, I've been privileged to, to been asked to share my story today, um, but I'm not really here to talk about myself. I'm here to talk about what God has done. And so as I share my story, my hope is to provide insights into the nature of God, what he's doing around the world, who he is, and most importantly, how you can connect with him given what I'm going to share. So that's my prayer. Let's ask for the Lord to be present in that. God, we are so overwhelmingly blessed by you. It's really easy to take for granted the many gifts that you give us. But the very fact that we can speak, the very fact that people can hear one another and interpret language and speak out of their mouths in language, God. All the processes that are working in the brain to make that happen, our ears, our mouths, our throats, our diaphragms, everything working in harmony, we could never have done that. Even today with all of our modern technology, we cannot invent that. And yet you give these gifts so freely that we take them for granted as if we were owed them somehow. The fact that we can sit without feeling shards of pain running through us, Lord, we take this stuff for granted. And now we're seeing people suffering across the world trying to trek on foot from Syria to the north. And we get to be here in this wonderful air-conditioned room. We get to have food while people are starving. God, I don't want any of us to feel guilty, but I do want all of us to know that you've privileged us so tremendously for a purpose. And so, Lord, please make your purposes known to us today. Please make your heart known to us today. God, I pray that you would speak to every single one of us here. If nobody heard a single word I said, but instead met with you personally, Lord, that would be the best thing that could happen. So, Lord, please meet. We thank you that you're not a God who reigns behind a veil, that you're not a God who says that you have to run through these hoops before I hear you. No, you're a God who listens. And not only do you listen, you say, where you gather in my name, there shall I also be. So God, we are here gathered in your name, and we thank you that you are amongst us. And Holy Spirit, we ask you to be in us. Help us put our distractions aside. God, open up our hearts to hear the message that you would share with us personally, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, a little bit of background about myself. My father came to the United States in 1975. He actually landed uh, the day that Elvis died. So when he gets off the airplane, he picks up a newspaper. The newspaper says, the king is dead. And my dad says, I could have sworn they had a democracy here. I got to learn all this over again. And my dad did. He he came to the U.S. and he didn't have anything. He really started from scratch. Um, He married my mom a few years later. It was an arranged marriage. So the first vacation he got, uh, he, by the way, joined the U.S. Navy. The first vacation he got, he went back to Pakistan, married my mom. And when they came to the U.S., they literally had nothing. Uh, My mother and father, they would go to McDonald's. And uh, I don't know how many of you remember this, but back then, they would have little styrofoam containers where they'd serve you the burgers in. Those of you who are nodding are showing your age. Uh, But they would have styrofoam containers. My parents would take those containers after eating the burgers, go home, wash them out, and keep them as their dishes because that was all the money they had. 
Uh, that's how my parents came to the U.S. Uh, my mom had been raised in kind of a, a, a kind of a status like that because her father was a missionary. Uh, my mom's father was a Muslim missionary, so he would preach in the jungles of Indonesia and spread Islam. So she grew up not having much anyway, except for a very devout faith in Islam. Her mother, so my grandmother, same thing, missionary kid born in Uganda because her father was preaching Islam. And though he was a physician, he was spending his entire life preaching in, in uh, Africa. And so I come from a line of Muslim missionaries on my mother's side. So you can imagine how devout they were. When my mom came to the U.S., uh, it was a matter of coming to the immoral West. That's how they saw it. I don't know how you see foreign countries that you've never been to. Some of you probably have some preconceived notions of a place, let's say, like Iran. And let's say you went there, you would have these notions of what Iran was like. Now imagine if you never left your home. You just stayed at home in Iran. You'd have this feeling of being an outsider in this other country, and you'd still have those preconceived notions. That's how it was for my mom. Because my dad, being in the Navy, would be deployed out to sea. My mom had no one, and no one ever invited her into their homes. So even though my mom would have loved friendship, no one ever invited her. So she kind of had this notion that they are outsiders. What she saw on TV was far more immoral than what she knew in Pakistan. Uh, the, the way that she saw people having divorces, people in, in our culture didn't really divorce like that. Uh, and so she saw all of that, and she correlated it with the fact that Christianity was the major religion in the West. So she said, look at all this immorality, look at this lifestyle. The reason why people are like this is because they're Christian. She didn't know any better. And so when I was born... Uh, my mom raised me in a very, very devout Islamic lifestyle. She wanted me to be a good, solid Muslim. And what did that look like? What does it mean to be uh, a Muslim in the West? Well, the first thing she taught me was how to recite the Quran. So from the age of three, I remember, she would sit me down next to her, put a skull cap on my head, and uh, she would teach me how to recite the letters of the Arabic of the Quran. Uh, my grandmother would come sometimes. I remember she would point to the Quran in, in her culture. She'd point to the Quran with her middle finger. Uh, and that would make me crack up every time. Like, do you have any idea what you're doing? She had no clue. She pointed to the Quran, and I'm reading along. By the age of five, I had recited the entire Quran in Arabic. Um, it was just because my mom was that devout in teaching us how to recite it. My father, leading us in the five daily prayers whenever he wasn't deployed, um, he would recite portions of the Quran during the five daily prayers. And so as a young Muslim, you hear the Quran multiple times a day. You memorize portions of it. By the age of five, I had memorized the last seven chapters of the Quran. And this was just normal for being a devout Muslim. It wasn't anything special about me. But I continued to grow into that kind of devout practice of Islam. I loved it. And my mother taught me also to respond to Christianity. Again, she saw it as a, as a corrupting influence. And so she wanted me to have a defense against Christianity. And what that looked like was very early on, she'd give me books to read that told me how I could know Christianity was false, how the Bible had been changed. These were things that our sect of Islam was publishing regularly so that the youth in our, uh, in our mosque could know how to respond to Christianity. So by the time I'm in middle school and in high school, this is what my life normally looked like. I'd wake up first thing in the morning, and before my feet left my bed, my mom had taught me to recite a prayer. Alhamdulillahilladhi ba'dama amatana wa alayhin noshur. Do we speak tongues in this church? 
No? All right, I'll translate. All praise belongs to the one who gives me life, causes me to die, and will raise me up again. Every morning, my mom had taught me to pray that prayer. All praise belongs to the one who gives me life, causes me to die, and will raise me up again. For me, it was, it was a prayer of remembering every single morning that I didn't wake myself up. God woke me up this morning. Thank you, God, for waking me up. But it was also a prayer reminding me that there would be a resurrection. There will be a death and a resurrection. And Muslims believe this. In fact, that prayer is something that Christians could pray if they wanted to. That overlaps theologically. That was the first thing I would pray every single morning. And then I'd get out of bed and walk to the washroom. And as I'd walk into the washroom, my mom had taught me to walk in with my left foot first. The reason why was because Muhammad, according to tradition, when he would go to do his ceremonial washing, he would walk into the washroom with his left foot first. And to that degree of detail, we had been taught to emulate Muhammad. That's what it means to be a good Muslim, to emulate Muhammad as much as you possibly can because he's the perfect exemplar. And he would recite certain Arabic prayers. By the way, the reason why I was reciting all this stuff in Arabic was because Arabic is the language of Islam, it's the language of Allah, and the language of Muhammad. My mom didn't speak Arabic. She spoke Urdu in the house. We all did. But we were reciting these prayers in Arabic. As I was doing my ceremonial washing called wudu in the morning, I'd be reciting Arabic prayers. Then I'd go downstairs to the prayer rugs and pray the first of the five daily prayers, the fajr prayer. All of that would be in Arabic too. Then I'd go to uh, the breakfast table, and my mom would say, Nabil, what do we say before we eat? And I would say, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, in the name of Allah, the most gracious, the most merciful. She'd give me my food, and then I'd finish eating, and she'd say, now what do we recite? And after eating, there was another prayer, thanking Allah for having made us Muslim. She would send me out the door, and she would say, Nabil, don't forget to recite that same prayer that Moses recited when he was standing in front of the Pharaoh. He asked God for wisdom and the ability to speak. Pray that prayer when you get to school. I said, yes, mom, you tell me this every day. (laughs) I will pray the prayer. And that's what it meant to be a Muslim for me before 7 o'clock in the morning, every morning, that much steeped remembrance of tradition in Allah. But then when I got to school, my mom had also told me, Nabil, you are an ambassador for Islam. When people see your face, it doesn't matter how good a student you are. People see you and they will think Muslim. So remember that you always represent Islam no matter what you do. So be the best student you can be in the class. Be the most respectful to your teachers. I want you to treat your teachers like you treat me. That's what my mom would tell me to do. And so when I'd get to school, I'd think, okay, I'm I'm representing Islam. And so in that context then, when people would come up to me, I would see myself as a Muslim. That was my identity. And I looked around at all the people who were Christian, and that was what I assumed everyone was, by the way. They were all Christian. If they didn't talk to me about their faith, I believed that meant one of two things. If a Christian didn't tell me about the gospel, I believed that meant one of two things. Either they didn't really believe it, or they didn't care if I went to hell. If someone needs to know Jesus and receive him in order to be saved, and you don't tell me that message, then you must not care if I'm saved. You don't care if I go to hell. Or you don't really believe the message yourself. And that's what I came to conclude, that all these Christians, none of them seems to care about their faith. They probably really don't believe it. There was one notable exception. Um, There was a girl in our school. Her name was Betsy. And Betsy was kind of the token Christian. I mean, she'd walk into a room, and she'd just be smiling. And it's like, will you knock it off? (laughs) Why do you keep smiling? Um, Shake it off, man. It's weird. 
but it wasn't weird. She was filled with fire for the Lord, but it to us looked weird. Uh, one day, she said to me, Nabil, do you know Jesus? Now, in retrospect, I think back to that moment, and I have to, I have to think, wow, she must have really prayed and prepared for that. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, my parents had prepared me for such moments too. And so my response was, yes, I know Jesus. And she was surprised to hear that. So I said, Muslims believe that Jesus is virgin-born. Muslims believe that Jesus is the most miraculous man who ever lived, that he was able to cleanse lepers, heal the deaf and blind, and even raise the dead. The Quran says that Jesus is the Messiah, and I know that he will come back at the end of times to initiate the latter days. And she was shocked. <laughs> she had no idea I was going to say that, so I continued for her and said, Muslims also believe, though, that Jesus is not God. And she said, no, Nabil, that's the most important part. Jesus is God. I said, do you really believe this? And she said, yes. And I say, hold on. How important is this belief for you that Jesus is God? She says, it's central to the Christian faith. And I said, okay. For the sake of this conversation, Betsy, I will grant you the four Gospels. I don't think they're reliable. I think they've been changed. But for the sake of this conversation, Betsy, let's just say the four Gospels are reliable and that they actually contain Jesus' words. Where does Jesus say he is God? And she thought about it for a moment, and I could tell that this was probably the first time she was really considering the question. And she said, well, Nabil, doesn't Jesus say the Father and I are one? I said, yeah, but that doesn't mean he's claiming to be God. I can say I'm one with someone. That means I'm unified in spirit with them. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus says. He prays for the disciples to be one just as he is one with the Father. So he clarifies the unity he has with the Father is the same kind of unity the disciples can have with each other. Look, Betsy, if you want to know what Jesus says about himself, why not go to that verse in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is walking through the villages of Galilee and it says he could do no miracles. Are you telling me God cannot do miracles? Or about that verse in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus says uh, that no one is good but God. How could he possibly be God? Or what about back to Mark's Gospel where Jesus says that nobody knows when the end of times is, not the angels nor the Son, but only the Father. Look, he's saying he doesn't know something that only God knows. No one knows the end of times. Now, I don't know. Only God knows. That's what he says. How could he possibly be God if he says he doesn't know something God knows? And each time I brought up one of these verses that I had memorized from childhood, she could not respond, and I could see the confidence just waning off her face. And the last verse that I quoted for her was kind of my coup de grace. I said, look, Betsy, if you really want to quote from the Gospel of John, why not quote the verse where Jesus says, the Father is greater than I? I think Jesus is right. I think God is greater than he is. I would believe him if I were you. If you want to know about Jesus in truth, ask me and I'll share Islam with you. And so the one girl in our class who was ready to share the gospel with me, I took her evangelism attempt and made it into my own dawah into my own invitation for her to come to know Islam. It was really easy to do because she hadn't thought about these questions. These weren't trick questions. I didn't even think they should be hard questions. You know, a hard question, if I wanted to have some fun, I'd ask people about the Trinity. They have no clue what they were talking about. Oh, you're a Christian, are you really? You believe in the Trinity? What is it? 
Well, God is three in one. Oh, is he? Is he a shampoo bottle? What does it mean for God to be three in one? And people would, would say, oh, it's a divine mystery. I don't know. Only, you know, you have to believe it by faith. And I'm like, oh, time out. The way you're using the word faith is the way I use the word ignorance. I'm not going to believe in these things without good reason. And so every time I had a conversation with a Christian, it made me more confident in my Islamic faith. All that continued until I got to college. The great thing about being at a university is you get to interact with people you disagree with and not get mad at them. <laughs> and that way you get to actually share ideas and learn. There was one guy on the public speaking and debate team. I joined the public speaking and debate team. There was one other guy uh, who didn't want to go clubbing uh, that night. The rest of the team went out clubbing, drinking, smoking, what have you. My mom said, Nabil, you're an ambassador for Islam, so stay back. And I did. One other guy stayed back too. And so the two of us hit it off. We became friends. We decided we all had to pair up that night for hotel rooms. And so he and I decided to share the hotel room together. And I saw him pull out a Bible. And I thought, whoa, nobody believes a Bible is reliable. This guy's especially deluded. All right, let's take care of this. And I looked at him and I said, David, do you realize that book you're reading is not trustworthy? And he closes the book and looks up and says, go on. Which should have been a sign for me that the conversation wasn't going to go my way, but uh, I was too into the moment to realize it. And I said, David, look, we know that Jesus spoke Aramaic, and the earliest church spoke Hebrew, so they probably had Jesus' words translated into Hebrew before they wrote down the New Testament, which was written in Greek. So by the time the New Testament was written, Jesus' words have already undergone a translation of a translation. But then the New Testament that lasted the longest in church history was in Latin, and that lasted a thousand years. That's another translation before it came into German, and from German it came into English. That's two more translations. So you got a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation. How do I know that what you're reading is actually the Word of God? And I'd used that challenge on hundreds of Christians before. But David had a response ready. What I didn't know about David... Uh, was that five years earlier, he had been an atheist. And the way he became a Christian was he saw someone reading a Bible. And he challenged that Christian. He said, you know why you're reading a Bible? Because you're born in America. If you'd been born in Saudi Arabia, you'd be reading a Quran. Had you been born in India, you'd be reading the Vedas. Had you been in the Far East, you would have been a Buddhist. But you're reading this just because that's what you were taught to believe. Uh, the... Uh, the self-contradiction was lost on David. He didn't realize the reason why he was an atheist was because his dad was an atheist, but that's all right. We'll forgive him. His friend Randy then spent a year showing him why he was a Christian. David then became a Christian and for the next four years had done nothing but studied the Bible and apologetics, and then I walked into a room, <laughs> challenged him. Uh, that whole morning, he had been saying, God, there's a Muslim on the public speaking and debate team. If you could just open the door for me to share the gospel with him. And I went, boom, right through that door. <laughs> hey, what's up? So David responds to me. He says, Nabil, a few moments ago, you were on the phone with your mom. And you weren't speaking English, were you? I said, no. And then he said, but when I asked you what you were talking about, you told me in English. Was it a bad translation? No. 
Nabil, since you are multilingual, you can take a message that's given to you in one language and accurately translate that message in another language. And that's exactly what the disciples did. When they were writing down the New Testament, they wrote it in Greek. And no matter what language Jesus was speaking with them, whether it was Aramaic or Hebrew or Greek, we don't know, it could have been any, they wrote it down in Greek. And of that Greek New Testament, we have in our possession over 5,500 manuscripts from ancient times. We know with certainty the message of the New Testament. And I looked at him and I said, David, you're making this up. I've spoken to hundreds of Christians and no one's told me this. He says, you think I'm making this up? I said, yeah, I think you're making this up. He said, well, bring it. I said, it's been brought, let's roll. And for the rest of the night, we just started arguing back and forth on the Bible, and uh, we ended up not finishing our conversation, but I found out that he was studying biology, I was studying pre-med, so we decided to sign up for classes together so we could sit in the back and argue some more. Um, <laughs> and that's what we just ended up doing. We just kept arguing all the time, and we, we, he would come to my house to study chemistry and to argue, and then my mom would feed him korma and biryani and makhni and all this awesome food, and then I'd go to his dad's house, and his dad would give me beef jerky. But whatever, you know, uh, we, we, in the midst of all this, we became best friends. And that's the point I'm trying to make. When you become best friends with someone, you can hear what it is that they are saying to you, and you can receive it without thinking that they're attacking you. Does that make sense? If I run into a street preacher, uh, it's, it's nothing against street preaching, by the way. I've done a lot of street preaching myself. But when I run into a street preacher, I don't know if they care about me personally. But if, my, if it's my best friend telling me, hey, Nabil, you're wrong, and this matters, I know he cares, and it's in the context of this relationship where I know he'll take a bullet for me that I started listening to what Christians actually had to say. And over the course of about a year, it did take that long, I began to realize that, wait a minute, this New Testament is reliable. There simply is no way anyone could have altered the message of the New Testament. It's not possible because of the way it spread. I mean, just think about it for a moment. Let's say Mark is writing his gospel. He sends it to a church. That church receives it, makes five copies, or sends it out to five more churches. They receive it, send five copies out to more churches. How is it possible for someone to alter what Mark has written? The only way is if someone can collect all of those manuscripts, change them, and re release them back out. But that never happened. No one ever had the power to do that. Christians were in hiding. They didn't all have excellent lines of communication. It simply wasn't possible. So the way the New Testament proliferated early on made it impossible for anyone to alter the message of the New Testament. And when I came to realize this, I said, okay, fine. But that doesn't make Christianity true. How do I know whether Christianity is true or not? What good reason is there to believe in the Christian message? And so at this point, I had to become much more systematic. And by the way, this whole time, I'm trying to turn David into a Muslim. I mean, that was my main goal here, make David a Muslim. Uh, so as I'm studying, I'm thinking, what can I do to actually get at the core of the Christian faith and show that it's not true? where I found the core of the Christian message, because there's all kinds of Christian beliefs, by the way. The Christian beliefs on original sin, the Christian beliefs about, about the virgin birth, Christian beliefs about all kinds of things, but those aren't necessarily the core of the Christian faith. The core of the Christian faith is what we heard this morning. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth, some of you might know this verse, you can, you can say some parts with me. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay, so there's three things here that Paul says you must believe in order to be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, he has to be God. 
believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, this is interesting for a few reasons. Uh, number one, it's interesting because Islam denies all three of these things. Remember, Islam said you can believe Jesus is the Messiah. You can believe he was virgin born. You can believe that he's miraculous and healing people. You can believe he's coming back at the end of times. But do not believe three things about Jesus. That he is Lord, that he died on the cross, or that he rose from the dead. The very three things Christianity says you must believe to be saved are the three things Islam denies about Jesus. Oh, that's fascinating. But consider this also. Those three things make a case, a historical case, and that's what I was looking for. You know, people often receive the gospel and become Christians because it's a message of love. I'm not saying that's illegitimate. That's great. But I had a ton of love in my family. I wasn't hurting for love. You know, I wasn't a drug addict needing restoration. A lot of the times people preach the message of restoration for the gospel. That's great, too. That's legitimate. But that's not what I needed. What I wanted to see was what was true, Islam or Christianity. What had actual reason behind it? And this Christian case here is actually a historical case. Think about those three things for a moment. Did Jesus die on the cross or not? The Quran says, He was not killed, nor was he crucified, but so it was made to appear. The Quran denies Jesus' crucifixion. Christianity, all four Gospels, Paul, everyone says Jesus died by crucifixion. So, by the way, when people say all religions are the same, uh, that's poppycock. This is ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. They're making complete contradictory statements. Jesus died by crucifixion. Jesus didn't die by crucifixion. One or the other. But we can actually look at the historical records to see that. We can see what history says because whether Jesus died on the cross is not some disembodied philosophical concept we have to believe by random faith, by blind faith. And by the way, for those of you who are thinking, Nabil, you're talking about a case for Christianity? I thought we were supposed to believe by faith. Uh, that's not what the word faith means in the New Testament. Blind ignorance is not the word for faith in the Bible. Just so you can know, the word faith in the Bible means trust. It's the exact same word. Pistis means trust. We translate it as faith. I wish we could go back and translate it as trust because that's more accurate connotation now. Let me unpack that for you because I feel like some of you are giving me your eyes now <laughs> on, on what faith is. When I got onto an airplane... Uh, I got onto Delta. Do you know what Delta stands for, by the way? My friend says this. Delta stands for deliver every living thing to Atlanta. <laughs> I got on a Delta plane, flew here to Toronto. Now, when I got on that plane, did I check the jet engines to see if they were working? No. Did I check the pilots to see if they were sober? No. Did I check the air conditioning to see if it worked? No. <laughs> None of this did I check, but I got on that plane anyway. Was I doing it in blind faith? No, because Delta has a track record. Delta is an airline agency that has been doing this kind of thing for years. They have a track record, and it's because I trust them that I can get on that plane in faith, trusting Delta. When we say we trust Jesus, we have faith in Jesus, it's not I believe blindly despite all reason. It's I have excellent reason to believe this man. I have reason to believe that he will save me. So I trust him. That's what it means to have faith. Where do we get that reason from? From this, 
Specifically, the early church fathers, and not even, even before the church fathers, Paul, Peter, the disciples, were saying the reason why we can trust Jesus is because he has risen from the dead. If someone says, I have supernatural authority, for example, when I was working in the, the psychiatry ward uh, when I was in medical school, people would come in and they would have delusions of grandeur, and every now and then as I'm interviewing a patient, they would say, I am God, and I would say, I'm glad you're here. Come on in, we've got a room for you. It's padded, locked, you'll love it. If someone claims to be God, that's pathological. If someone says, I have supernatural authority, I'm not going to believe them. But if they then rise from the dead to prove it, now they have a case. Now I have reason to say, yes, you do have supernatural authority. Wow, you rose from the dead. You just claim to be God, and then you rose from the dead. I have to wrestle with this for a moment. And that's exactly what the disciples were saying early on. Watch the first sermon that Peter gives. I mean, not right now, but when you go home, read Acts chapter 2. See what sermon is Peter gives. Does he say, uh, does he go out into the streets and say, hey, do you know if you're saved? Do you know what would happen if you die tonight? It's not what he says. He says, this man Jesus has risen from the dead to prove who he is, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. The message of the gospel was founded on the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. If you need any more proof, by the way, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Jesus is not risen, our faith is in vain. If Jesus isn't risen, our faith is in vain, and we're of all people most to be pitied. He's, he's not saying, hey, this is some religion we just believe to make ourselves feel better. It's this man actually physically rose from the dead to prove what he was saying. This is something historical. The Christian faith is grounded in historical truth, or at least a historical claim. So when I realized this, I said, let's turn to the pages of history and see whether we actually have good reason to believe that Jesus claimed to be God, that he died on the cross, and that he rose from the dead. Because if he did all three of those things, there's good reason to believe in Christianity. And remember, Islam denied all of those things. So if I were proving one, I'm disproving the other. I have to skip past the evidence. This is what I spent an hour and a half talking about yesterday at U of T. But I'll tell you the conclusion. After studying those three things very, very carefully for three years, I came to the conclusion. I came to these three conclusions. Number one, the death of Jesus by crucifixion is historically undeniable. The death of Jesus by crucifixion is historically undeniable. Number two, that Jesus rose from the dead is by far the best conclusion regarding the death of Jesus. That Jesus rose from the dead is by far the best conclusion regarding the events surrounding the death of Jesus. And number three, the only way the Christian message could have spread the way it did is if Jesus himself claimed to be God. I came up to these three conclusions while still a Muslim. Now, you can imagine the cognitive dissonance that this created for me because my parents had taught me one thing my whole life, everyone I trusted. And remember that Eastern folks are oftentimes much more grounded in authority structures. People who taught you something, people you trust, they are the ones you're receiving your worldview from. And if all of a sudden you find out they're wrong, that shakes your whole world. It's not just, hey, my parents and my imam were wrong. It's, whoa, what am I doing? Who am I now? That's kind of the position I was in. My friend David at that point said, Nabil, why don't we take the same level of critical investigation that you applied to Christianity and apply that to Islam? Good friend, when I'm already off base, he's like pushing me even more. 
Why don't we apply the same level of critical reasoning to Islam? Now, this is why my colleague, Oz Guinness, says um, comparison is the mother of clarity, or contrast is the mother of clarity. You can poke holes at something all day long, but when you compare it to what you believe, that's when you actually realize how strong or how weak another case is. So I've been attacking Christianity for three years. But now I applied those same standards to Islam. And when I did that, the foundations of Islam were decimated. I was willing to challenge the Gospel of John, for example. And I have some Muslim friends right now who are doing this. Uh, when I showed to them in the Gospel of John that Jesus claims to be God, it's pretty darn obvious. You see it in verse 1, that Jesus is God in John's Gospel. The response I gave when I was a Muslim was, well, John's Gospel came 60 years after Jesus. We can't believe that. It's too late. Well, when we studied Muhammad's life, what I found out was the earliest biography on Muhammad's life comes 150 years later. And here's the thing, if I'm willing to dismiss something that comes 60 years later, how can I possibly believe anything about a man whose earliest biography comes 150 years later? And as, of course, the, the arguments become much more complicated, but that seems to be the general trend when you are consistent that the foundations for Islam are decimated. I need to move on, I think I'm taking too much time. So I get to a point then where I am completely broken before God because everything I thought I knew has been just pulled from under me. And so I say to God, God, can you give me supernatural verification for what I've studied? Now understand, Muslims aren't like agnostics and atheists in that they're, they're doubting whether God exists. I had full, firm faith that God was present this whole time, and that he would hear me when I called out to him. The Quran says that Allah's, Allah is not far from the cry of his servant. And the Bible says, Matthew 7, 7, ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and the door shall be opened for you. So it's kind of like, sweet, one way or the other, God's listening. <laughs> so I started saying, God, can you show me who you are? Understand Muslims, uh, in, in many cultures anyway, um, have a lot of faith in dreams and visions. Uh, because the hadith actually say that this is the only way a Muslim can hear directly from God, is through dreams and visions. And so I asked God for, just to give you a little bit more background on that, they don't believe that without reason, too. Uh, my father had many, many prophetic dreams that came true when I was a child. Tons of them. So many that I remember a specific point where he said, God, stop giving me prophetic dreams because these are scary. My mom, I'll give you an example, when my mom got married to my dad in, in the late 70s, she had a dream where she was planting four seeds in the ground. Two of those seeds grew up into trees and two did not. She didn't know what it meant. She, meant to, she went to my aunt, who was her sister-in-law, and she said to her, I've had this dream, I don't know what it means. And my aunt says, you're blessed, for you already know that you will have four pregnancies, two of which will be miscarriages, and two will be children. Fast forward 17 years, that's exactly what happened. And that's not strange for our culture. It's fairly common. Now, if you're asking me, Nabil, who's giving these dreams? Is it God? Is it something else? How is this happening? I'm not, I don't know, honestly. But that is why Muslims have confidence in dreams and visions. That's why I had confidence in dreams and visions. And so I asked God to give me a vision in dreams to clarify my investigation. Please notice, I wasn't throwing all my faith on experience, but it was to corroborate what I had used my mind to study. 
I, I don't have time right now to go into the details on the dreams and visions I got, but I got one vision in three dreams, all of which confirmed the truth of Christianity. Uh, by the way, um, the books that are being sold here have my story. They're all about my story, and I don't get a single cent from them, not even a Canadian cent. <laughs> so feel free to buy them. I'm not selling you them to make money off of them. But even if you can't afford that, my story's online for free. You can find it in many places as well. So I had a vision in three dreams that confirmed for me the truth of Christianity. At that point, I was completely broken because now it was a matter of I've done the research. It points towards the Christian faith. I've asked God to guide me. What I got points me towards the Christian faith. But that means I have to leave everything. Because if you're in a Muslim culture, a devout Muslim culture, not a nominal one, if you're in a nominal or perhaps a liberal one, if you leave, you, know, you might still get some kickback, but it won't be as bad as if you're in a devout Muslim culture where your parents will potentially disown you. Uh, there was one friend of ours who recently left Islam uh, when he was in the United States as a student, went back to the Middle East and was killed by his parents when he got off the plane. Uh, that's the kind of thing that Muslims have to think about when they're considering leaving their Islamic faith. In 2004, um, there was a news article that in New Jersey, a whole family was slaughtered because they had converted from Islam to Christianity. And we know it was because of their Christian faith because the girl in the family had gotten a tattoo in her arm and whoever slaughtered them had mutilated her, her cross tattoo in the United States. So it doesn't matter what kind of Islamic culture you're coming from. If it is devout, you might have to give up your life for your Islamic faith. I didn't have to really worry about it. I didn't think anyone was going to kill me. Um, but for me, it was having to give up my family because Islam was our identity. It was who we were. My mom didn't know anything else. And so if I were to become a Christian, okay, not only does that create a massive rift within my family, but think about for a moment what it does to my mom. She's the daughter of a Muslim missionary. She herself is devoting all this effort into the mosque to, to serve it. And in an honor and shame culture, your reputation is everything. And if your firstborn and only son becomes a Christian, that doesn't just cause family problems. That destroys your... So by me becoming a Christian, my whole family was going to be dragged through the mud. Am I so sure about all this that I'm willing to do that to them? So you're risking your social circles, potentially this life itself. And of course, chapter 5 in the Quran, verses 72 and 73 say, if you believe Jesus is God, your abode is the hellfire. Risking everything in this life, this life itself, and potentially your afterlife if you're wrong by going from Islam to Christianity. So I was just bawling. I was crying. And I was saying to God, this is, by the way, I met David my freshman year of college. At this point, uh, is my first year of, or my second year of medical school. This took a long time. And I started, I was driving to medical school that day, and I just remember just crying on the highway, saying, God, I know what I need to do. Well, will you just give me your comfort? I need time to mourn before I can make this decision. Instead of going to school that day, I went back to my apartment. I didn't know what I was doing. And I put a Quran and a Bible in front of me. And I said, God, comfort me. And believe it or not, Muslims use the Quran primarily for liturgy. They don't actually use it for exegesis. They don't go and, and do devotions from the Quran, generally speaking. 
So this is my first time actually opening the Quran for personal guidance from it. And I start looking through the Quran, trying to find comfort. It's trying to find a verse that says God loves you no matter what, something like that. And I could not find one. God's love was always conditional. If you do this, God will love you. If you do that, God will love you. Otherwise, God does not love those who sin. There was not a single verse designed to comfort me in that moment. So I closed the Quran. I said, but this book does not apply to my life. I opened up the Bible. Believe it or not, every time I'd read the Bible before that was to either confirm or deny it. It wasn't to actually receive any personal guidance. So I didn't even know what to do. And I said, you know, Christians read the New Testament. I'll start with that. Opened up to Matthew chapter 1. Saw a bunch of genealogies, so I skipped them. <laughs> hey, I was a Muslim. I have a reason. You guys have no excuse. Skip the genealogies. It didn't take me long to get to Matthew chapter 5 where it says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When I read that, it was like the words were written just for me. I mean, you guys are allowed to read it, that's fine. But my feeling was, this was my verse. And it was like it was electric, and like jumped off the page and kick-started my heart. That's what it felt like. And as I'm reading through the Word of, of God at this point, I'm thinking, this is the Word of God, and I just feel like I'm having a conversation with the text almost. I'd ask a question, and I'd look, and in the footnote, there'd be an answer. So I'd say something like, God, how do I know you can hear me? Look at the footnote. If you want to know God can hear you, go to 1 John 5. Sweet. Boom. 1 John 5. Start reading. I start going through all the footnotes back and forth in the Bible, and I'm finally feeling like a parched soul reading from the living water of God. And I actually spent a week just reading, following every single footnote, and in that week I got from Matthew 5 to Matthew 10. <laughs> but in Matthew 10, this is what I read. He who confesses me before the people of this world, I will confess before my Father in heaven. He who denies me before the people of this world, I will deny before my Father in heaven. Look, I had all the evidence. I had all the spiritual guidance. I even had the emotional comfort from the Scripture, but I had not proclaimed. And this is Matthew 10, 32. And I looked up at God and I said, God, if I proclaim, it'll cost me my family. You know what the next verses say? He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. I thought about that and I said, yeah, you're right. If I truly loved my parents, I would follow you so that your blessings could pour out onto them. But it's not just my parents, it's my whole life. It's everything I know. You know what the next verses say? He who loses his life for my sake will find it. And so I bowed the knee in that moment. No one had told me about a sinner's prayer, by the way. I prayed something that sounded very Muslim. <laughs> I said, Jesus, I submit that you are my God and that you have taken my sins and paid for them on the cross and risen from the dead to prove to me that I can have faith in you. I think in that moment, I had consented, intellectually assented, to the gospel, but I hadn't realized its power. That didn't happen until a few days later, when my mom and dad were standing in front of me. Now, I'll tell you, my dad was in the Navy, like I said, 24 years, retired a lieutenant commander from the Navy. I had never seen my father cry before this day. And he said, Nabil, 
Today I feel as if my backbone has been ripped out from inside me. And my mom, who's never short on words, by the way, she didn't say anything at all. If you had met her before that day, you would have seen a woman who had like a light inside her who was just gregarious and outgoing and loving and hospitable. But that day, it's as if I reached into her and turned that light off. And she just looks like a hollow person. And she has ever since. And when they left, my dad took her to the hospital because my mom thought she was having a heart attack. And I dropped to my knees. And I was just bawling all night that night, just crying. I don't know how you get when you're in your most distraught moments. I start rocking back and forth and repeating things. I had stuff coming out of my face, tears, saliva, mucus, all kinds of stuff. And as I'm rocking back and forth, I start repeating, why didn't you kill me, God? Why didn't you kill me? Why didn't you kill me? And what I meant was, God, why didn't you kill me the moment I believed? Because if you killed me in that moment, my parents would have known I'd become a believer. They'd still be happy with me. I'd be in heaven. I'd be happy. I'd be worshiping you. You'd be happy. We'd all be happy if you just killed me the moment we believed. And so I was rocking back and forth saying, why didn't you kill me? Why didn't you kill me? And I'm not here to mess with your theology. I'm just here to testify to what God has done in my life. As I was rocking back and forth saying, why didn't you kill me? Why didn't you kill me? I heard these words resonate through my being. Nabil, this is not about you. And I froze. And the cliche that some of you may hear, when I became a believer, everything looked different. The colors were brighter and all that. That was the moment that happened to me. When I stood up, it was as if all that crying, all that pity, all that self-lamentation was somebody else. And now, everything had changed. And when I walked out my front door, I saw the trees that I had seen tons of times. I saw the road that I had seen tons of times. But everything looked completely different. But the thing that looked the most different to me was I saw someone walking across the street. And for the first time in my life, I didn't see just someone walking across the street. What I saw was someone God was willing to die for. Okay, can you understand the complete paradigm shift that is involved here? Because up until that moment, I had thought that God was someone who basically stands back and watches and judges us and sees if we've jumped through various hoops to see if he's happy enough with us to let us into heaven. That's who I understood God was. He just stands back and watches and judges. And all of a sudden, I realized that that is not this God. This God is willing to roll up his sleeves, step off his throne, and into the universe he created so that he can suffer with the people he loves. That is a completely different message. Okay, Muslims, one thing that they definitely get right is the grandeur and the majesty of God and how huge he is. And I think we can learn from that. God has created this universe. He thought it into existence. That's how powerful God is. If you see the stars in the sky, God was able to determine exactly how bright they will be, how hot they will burn, how long they will live, just by thinking them. That's how powerful God is. And that God became a baby born in a manger to two people who had just been accused of an illegitimate relationship. Have you thought of this? He chose to come to two probably teenagers who have all the infamy of the community 
because they think that they had an illegitimate relationship. Jesus was born as an illegitimate child. Why? He didn't have to. He didn't sign a contract which said, I have to come as this child. He chose to. If you look at his lineage, who was in his lineage? Prostitutes, adulterers, idolaters. Why? Why didn't he come into a noble lineage? Why did he get born to a carpenter? Why not a prince or a king? Why did he have to come and work with his hands and sweat and bleed? Have you thought about this question? This is the God of the universe we're talking about. And then when he finally gets 12 people that he pours his life into, in his moment of need, they all flee from him. One of them had just said, I will not leave you, I will die next to you. One of them betrayed him while kissing him. Have you thought about this? It's because if you, you were born to a family that was dishonorable, God says, I don't care about that. I love you. I'm willing to sympathize with you. If you don't know your father, if you have a family line with all kinds of brokenness, Jesus says, I don't care about that. I'm walking with you. If you have been left by someone who has said, I will be with you till death do us part, betrayed with a kiss, God wants to let you know that he loves you and is willing to walk with you. And when his body is broken on that cross, and understand it was broken, his skin was hanging from his body in ribbons. Cicero tells us that that's what the flogging process was like. People's arteries and veins were laid bare before they were put on the cross. Some people's intestines fell out before they were put on the cross. No one had a loincloth they were wearing on the cross the only reason we draw that on Jesus is we can't take how bad the crucifixion actually was. The one execution in history designed to be the most painful and the most humiliating. God looks at all the executions in history and says, that one, that's the one that I want to use to show them how much I love them. And as he's taking rattling breaths on the cross, a skinless back, being scraped against splintered wood for every breath, we should remember these words. As I have loved you, so love one another. Look, this is the message that I want to bring to you today. All of that was just to lead up to this. Please hear me on this. If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, then do what he did. That's what it means to be a follower. And this is, I'm not preaching down to you. This is the struggle I have in my life. How can I follow such a great God? But his message was be willing to die even for the people who will kill you. Be willing to die for them. Have you been given extra clothes? When someone takes your tunic, give to them your cloak also. Do you have food? Give your enemy something to eat. If your enemy is thirsty, give them something to drink. No one preached a message like this before Jesus. And if we actually take that message and live it out, how this world would be healed overnight if every Christian actually lived like Christ. When we call ourselves Christians, guess what we have done? The word Christian means little Christ. Right? That's what the word Christian means, little Christ. It means we have taken the Lord's name 
And if we have taken the Lord's name and do not do what he has done, we have taken the Lord's name in vain. And that's the commandment that we have been told, not to take the Lord's name in vain. The beauty of the Christian message is this, that we are healed through the grace of God. He doesn't need us to jump through hoops. He loves us. Like a perfect father, he loves us no matter what we have done. And in that forgiveness and grace, we can release our poison. And once we have been forgiven, we can go turn and heal the world. And we can pour ourselves out and die for the world. We can die. That's what Paul says. There is no sting to death anymore. To live is Christ and to die is gain. We can die for the sake of others so that they can be healed and so that the glory of God can reach the corners of the earth. Look, you are here in Toronto, 2015, in September, not on accident. I don't care who you are in this room. Like it was said by Pastor Phil at the beginning, if you're here, you're here because God has a purpose for you to be here. You're not an accident. Acts chapter 17 tells us that God has put us in a specific time and place so we might reach out to him and find him. You're here in Toronto for a reason. What is that reason? God says to you, I want you here now so you can change the world. What is that reason? Who are you? Who are you? You're a child of God, placed here to change the world. Are we going to follow Christ and give grace and healing to this world that it so desperately needs? Please bow with me. God, thank you that you're not a God who said, do this, don't do that. That you're not a God who said, I will only love you if you perform for me. We thank you, God, that you're a God who leads by example. You don't just say, be humble. You show us what it means to be the most humble God. You don't just say, love your enemy. You actually loved us when we were sinning against you. And God, I pray that we would make this life meaningful as people are walking right now from Syria to the north of Europe. What can we do, Lord, to show your love? As people are fighting in Israel and Palestine, as the Arab Spring has not yet come to a complete end, as ISIS is killing and destroying, and that's just in one part of the world, God. How can we be you? How can we live as you would have us live? God, please meet us. Convict us, move us to live lives worthy of the gospel and the calling we've received. If there's anyone here, Lord, who does not yet know you, I pray that you would have reached them through this message, that you love them, and that all the sin and the junk in their lives, all the mistakes they've made are something that you can redeem, something that you can make glorious and that you love your son, and you love your daughter, and that you are ready for them. God, I pray that you would convict them to run to you. We love you, God, and we thank you that you've given us hope, and that no matter what happens in this life, we have victory through you. We love you, Jesus.
It's in your name we pray. Amen.